Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the last panel here of the day, the ETF uh, um, industry roundtable, I guess. Uh, my name is Tom Champion. I am in the ETF group at the New York Stock Exchange. I've been working on and with ETF on ETFs and with ETF issuers for the past 13 years. Um, I'm very happy, and thank you, Nicholas, for having us uh, moderate this panel. Um, joining me today is Steve Dunn from uh, um, Aberdeen Standard Investments, Alex Ashby from Global X, uh, um, Nick, I, I can see who's next, uh, Nick Elward from the Texas, and, um, and, and Matt Collins from uh, PGM. I'll give them each an opportunity to uh, introduce themselves. Thank, uh, thanks, Tom. So Steve Dunn from Aberdeen Standard. Um, so I've been in the ETF industry since 2000. Um, started my career with uh, iShares prior to the BlackRock transaction um, and sort of grew up through Deutsche and, and helped uh, launch a number of different products at a lot of different firms. Um, so currently with Aberdeen Standard, Aberdeen Standard got into the business recently uh, through an acquisition of ETF securities. And so Aberdeen has been in the ETF business for about a year at this point in time. So thank you. Alex. Um, Alex Ashby. I manage product development at Global X ETFs. I've uh, been with the firm since 2010. Uh, since then, we've grown to have 70 passively managed ETFs with approximately 10 billion in assets under management. Uh, we focus mostly on uh, areas of thematic growth, uh, income, and access solutions. Hi, my name is Nick Elward. I work at Natixis Investment Managers. I've been working in product roles for about 22 years at different companies. Uh, as far as Texas goes, we're a, a large asset manager of about $900 billion under management. Uh, we're global. Uh, we're probably the 15th largest asset manager. You probably, you may not have heard of us because our model is one of buying other asset managers and then through central distribution, helping distribute their uh, capabilities. A few of the managers that you may recognize are Luma Sales, Harris, or Oakmark. Uh, they run funds as well as uh, institutional products. We offer mutual funds, ETFs, and I head up the ETF business. We offer commingled trusts and also uh, private funds. And it's a pleasure to be with you today. Hi, Matt Collins. I co-head the ETF business for PGM. Um, if you haven't heard of PGM, we are the financial asset management arm of Prudential Financial, the insurance company. Um, we have six products in the market with about 400 million in assets. Um, we are one of the few ETF managers in the market that are active only. Um, so our sort of strategy in the market is to leverage our existing business and offer active at a uh, relatively low cost. Um, in terms of background, I've spent my entire career in ETFs, started in 2006 with Vanguard, uh, worked with Steve at, at ETF Securities, and I've been with Prudential for about two years now. All right, thanks everybody. Um, I don't know how, uh, how well the audience knows uh, what's going on in the ETF industry, but uh, there was a big announcement yesterday or a couple days ago that, uh, that uh, Presidian got the approval from the SEC to launch the first non-disclosed or uh, non-transparent actively managed ETFs. It's really big news in our industry. Um, so I think that's how we'll start off. Um, I'm gonna each ask, ask each of you, um, you know, what's your firm's reaction to uh, Presidian being approved? Yeah, and so, so I'm certainly supportive of, of, of the news coming out. Uh, Aberdeen has been historically an active shop, and so I think as most of the active shops that are in the mutual fund industry, 
have continued to watch the development from an ETF perspective and then specifically you know, what's going on in this space. So certainly I would suggest that we're supportive. Um, even prior to, to Aberdeen getting into the, ET, into the ETF business, they were following um, this process along. So I would assume that Aberdeen is no different than many of the other asset managers in the U.S. than watching this pretty keenly um, and pretty happy with the developments that are taking place. Obviously now the hard work just begins, but, uh, but the reality is uh, extremely supportive of the development. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for, for Global X's perspective, you know, I, I'd say we're more of a, a curious observer. Uh, we're, we're purely passive, uh, passively managed ETFs, so we're kind of a few product iterations away from, um, you know, active, non-transparent, but certainly, you know, very interesting product innovation uh, could give investors more, more choice. I think there's going to be some interesting um, questions or uh, see what products come to market, see what kind of the end demand um, is. It's... It's been challenging to uh, launch new ETFs and get uh, get assets into you know into new products. So we'll be curious to to see how it how it plays out. Yeah, really nothing uh, significant to add. But as another active manager, we're very excited about this um, announcement. Uh, congratulations to Presidian and also to the SEC for all the time they put into this analysis and to get the approval. Um, we are also in line to get approval for uh, active non-transparent ETFs. Uh, in partnership with the New York Stock Exchange, Natixis has a filing in, and uh, we're awaiting uh, SEC approval and closely collaborating with them to work through the questions that they have. So clearly, uh, we're, we're excited, uh, we're encouraged, and as you mentioned, uh, this is all about choice for investors, and uh, if we can create, uh, if we can deliver active management that, that historically was not um, possible to deliver um, in an ETF structure, I think that's something that's powerful and, and we could see a lot of change in vehicle types uh, for investors with the ETF structure being one that most recognize is more tax efficient. Uh, we have the daily tradability of ETFs that people like and also some lower operating costs. There's a lot of excitement for people to now have more opportunities to invest in active ETFs. So obviously we're thrilled with uh, this news, Tom. Right. Yeah, we're very supportive of Presidian and, and the sort of non-transparent model. Um, I think with that said, though, I think we'd like to see it opened up quite a bit. I think hopefully, um, particularly with the ETF rule, the days of a few firms having sort of a hold on uh, a certain type of structure are hopefully over. Um, so we'd like to see multiple models approved, multiple providers out there uh, providing them. Um, I'm sure that'll happen at some point down the road. Um, and then for us personally on, on the active side, you know, we're pretty comfortable being transparent for most of our portfolios. We feel like that uh, is a core aspect of ETFs. People do want to know what you hold. Um, but we understand there are strategies that do need to um, hide their holdings every so often. Um, the higher the active share, the, you know, the more concentrated your portfolio, you don't want to give away what you, you buy and sell. Um, so I think we'll be very selective with the kind of strategies that we choose to um, be non-transparent non with. And, um, but for the rest of our lineup, we'll try to be as transparent as possible. And Nick, I'm going to uh, direct this question to you, but you mentioned that Natixis has an exemptive application in with the SEC um, as well. Uh, Natixis has had that application in for a couple of years now. Um, why did your firm decide early on to file an exemptive relief application? And, um, you know, how do you think that's going to progress and 
maybe compare your what you're do, trying to do with what Presidian's trying to do a little bit. Yeah, sure, Tom. So we're we're an active manager from the heart, from the heart on out. So this is something that really ties in well with the firm's philosophy to uh, support active management. Uh, our affiliates are generally high active share equity affiliates, so this is very consistent with that. Uh, so that's the start. Um, additionally, we're already in the ETF business. We have active non-transparent, pardon me, active transparent ETFs, uh, one equity, one fixed income. So we have the experience in that space already. Uh, so, and in terms of how the Presidian model differs from that of the Natixis NYSE model, the Presidian model uses um, the confidential account approach, which is, um, kind of stands out as unique uh, as opposed to the other models that are currently in with the SEC that use more of a proxy portfolio approach. The bottom line is that both styles of the approach are trying to provide market makers um, a feeling of confidence and understanding how that ETF will behave in the market so they can effectively hedge out their risk of owning or you know, making markets in that, in that ETF. So um, certainly there are some pros and cons of each approach, but each approach also, um, based on the data that's been shown to the SEC and, and data that's been run independently, has a high probability of having uh, tight correlations and being able to generate uh, tight spreads in the market. So we're, we've been talking about several different approaches here, Presidian, the use of a proxy portfolio that Natixis has filed for. Um, do you guys think that there's room for more than one approach when it comes to non-transparent, actively managed ETFs? Maybe I'll start with you, Steve. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 mean, I echo what Matt's uh, thoughts are. I, th I think the, the more optionality that there is, um, the more solutions um, that there are, the better off there is. You, you always want competition in this space. Um, to, to provide those. And, and there's a couple different models out there, and each of them have their own merits from that standpoint. As we're having conversations internally um, with some of our active managers, there's certain things that they're concerned about, very similar to what Matt suggested. It's not necessarily the daily transparency. What they're more concerned about is uh, the, the getting in positions and exiting positions and, and front-running some of those type of aspects. And so, I mean, you want models that have the ability to... to, to to hide some of that aspect with, with, while providing as much transparency as possible. And I think each of the models addresses that way a little bit differently. And so from that standpoint, uh, you, want as many, you want as many folks in there with um, slightly different options that just gives, you, it gives us flexibilities as a manager to ultimately decide and what's the best situation for the portfolio. Because we're big fans of the transparency. We're big fans of all the capabilities that the ETFs provide. We'd like to bring some of those same characteristics to, to the active space. And so the more options you have, the better off you're going to be. Okay. Um, Alex, your firm uh, currently, I believe, all your products are index-based products. So you're not on, in the active space, whether it's fully transparent or non-transparent. Um, again, I think you, you said you, you're an active observer. Mm -hmm. In general, and, and maybe not just on the non-transparent, but in active ETFs altogether, do you see that as one of the future drivers for ETF asset growth? So, I mean, I think in terms of, of asset growth, um, there's definitely potential there. I, I think the question to me is where, you know, where those assets going to come from. Um, you know, certainly you have investors that are already more familiar with you know, active management, non-transparent, active, and you know, if those investors prefer the ETF structure wrapper or the, you know, it's more cost effective for them to use 
um, an actively managed ETF, then, then I think those assets, you know, could could move in that direction. Um, you know, we, we still, as a passive uh, firm, you know, we're encouraged by a lot of the, the data that we see around, uh, whether it be demographic or generational preferences for, um, you know, passive. And I think there's a recent survey from from Charles Schwab that. Uh, the, the preferred vehicle for millennials is 90% of them prefer ETFs as their their kind of um, vehicle of choice. But those those investors could you know uh, develop an interest in active, and uh, I think it's still an open uh, an open question. But there certainly could be a, a growth driver there. Anybody else have anything to add on that? Yeah, I mean, just on the on the active side, I think the knock that we hear from uh, you know the media or our clients is well. There's a lot of active ETFs out there and they haven't gathered any assets. I think we would argue that there haven't been too many legitimate active managers that are offering what they do well in ETF form. Um, they're offering byproduct of what they, you know, they don't want to mess with sort of the revenue stream on, on their traditional active management. And as a result, they launch a passive smart beta fund that sort of looks and feels like, like their active fund. So no one's really been willing to step forward um, and offer clients just totally product agnostic offering, where they can choose between the mutual fund and the ETF based off what, what wrapper works well. Um, so our approach is just to tie in our ETFs directly to the PMs that our clients already know and, and the same strategy. Um, and I think that's where this non-transparent thing, that'll finally allow some other providers to do the same. And that will be, I think, a, a huge growth opportunity for, for the market. And Tom, I, think, I mean, I think the way that we're looking at it from a firm standpoint is, you know, as we're having conversations with clients or approaching clients is, you want to have as full of a solution set as possible. So we look at this as a solution in potentially a multi-solution, you know, toolbox, right, kind of aspect. And, and so it's offering the ability to, to the end client, how do you want it, we're, we're agnostic to how it's delivered, but we have the capabilities of delivering these in multiple different formats. So, so from our standpoint, that's the way that we're looking at it. Is it it's a different vehicle, a di different delivery vehicle that we can deliver the solution that ultimately the client is looking for. So whether that's a, a more transparent, a cost efficient, whatever they're looking for, we'd like to be able to deliver that aspect. Okay. Nothing <clears throat> to add to that very comprehensive answer by my three panelists. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, sort of uh, maybe um, uh, bringing that a little bit further, uh, the current, most of the current ETF um, investors uh, are doing it to get certain beta exposures. They're all index-based. Do you think all, most ETFs are index-based. Do you think that it's going to be an easy jump from being invested in index or passive ETFs to the active space for individual investors? I think, if I could, yeah. uh, Tom, I think uh, investors will be open to active management like they've historically been. Uh, if you look at the assets in active mutual funds, it's, it's tremendous. I think it's roughly 12 trillion in long-term assets under management. So investors are acclimated to using um, active mutual funds. The jump for them to use active ETFs I don't think is great. Many are both using active mutual funds and passive mutual funds or active mutual funds and passive ETFs. So I think just simply the wrapper of active non-transparent ETFs and using active management is not much of a jump. I think they'll be comfortable doing that because as I said before, they'll look to the tax efficiency, the lower costs, and also the intraday tradability. And those benefits in getting a manager, a premier manager that has proven the active management skill in a mutual fund is something that will attract them. So I think it's big and we're looking forward to helping a lot of investors with this new vehicle type. 
Anybody else have anything to add on that one? All right, I think um, you know we spoke a lot about active management now. Um, in the ETF space, we have the non-transparent active, which there's no products out there quite yet, and then we have the transparent active. But there's all sorts of other kinds of ETFs out there and new ideas for ETFs coming. Um, is there trends that you see, and I'll give this question to each of the panelists, um, do, you see trend, do you see trends in product development or different types of ETFs that your firm is interested in listing over the next three to five years? I know uh, ESG last year and again now this year has been a big topic. Are there other trends that you guys are seeing? Yeah, we, you know, on our side, we manage about a trillion dollars, 700 billion of that is in, in fixed income, um, all actively managed. Um, we think there's an enormous opportunity um, in the active fixed income space. Um, so I think we're going to spend a good amount of our time focusing on actively managed fixed income. Um, as assets continue to move over to ETFs, I think uh, the trend will be a larger market share for active uh, fixed income. So that, I think, for us is where we're going to spend a lot of time. Now, do you mind if that's, uh, and sorry, just a follow-up question there for you, Matt. In the fixed income space, uh, I think transparency is less of an issue. Would you agree with that? Yeah, we have absolutely no issue uh, disclosing our holdings, primarily because uh, we do a lot of block orders, uh, a lot of one-on-one -on -one transactions with the broker-dealers where scale matters. Um, it, I think one of the larger issues in the market are with high-yield passive ETFs. That is a space, sort of by definition, non-investment grade, where it doesn't make a ton of sense to just simply buy the market. Um, from our standpoint, it does require fundamental research to understand a company's uh, outlook, our ability to sort of select bonds based off of what we think is a good relative value. But from a trading perspective, um, it takes time and expertise to buy those bonds and not sort of impact your performance. Um, so just jamming in $400 million a day in a passive fund, I don't think clients realize um, that's not the best outcome, typically. There is a, there is a cost to that. Um, so we do have an active high-yield fund, um, and the buying and selling is done by us, not by ETF trading firms or market makers. We take cash into the portfolio, and we give it to the PMs that are overseeing probably $70 billion in high-yield assets. That scale matters. Um, you have better access to new issuance in the market. You can sort of commingle it with, with other trading activity, and I think that is a, uh, a good value add for, for clients. And, and I entirely agree with Matt. Uh, fixed income we see as an enormous opportunity as well for ETFs, and also active transparent, not needing to be non-transparent. We have one product in market with Loomis Sales, one of our affiliates now, LSST, and um, Trading really makes a difference. Their expertise, their trading in size, their ability to access IPOs when passive products have difficulty doing that based on reconstitution timelines and rebalancing all makes a difference. So just adding to fixed income, I think alternatives is another very large growth area for ETFs. There's not much supply out there. Oftentimes clients come to me and, and say they're just not getting what they need. Um, and we've seen alternatives not be um, in appeal the last three, four years as traditional equities and fixed income have performed so well. But I do think that the next opportunity might be alternative investments in ETFs. And maybe going back to what you mentioned about ESG, I think it's an interesting 
case because it's uh, there is demand out there. You know, the, the clients are looking for ESG solutions, and, and products have been coming to market offering those types of, of uh, you know, approaches. But the assets haven't really followed into the into the products. And I think part of the challenge with ESG specifically is it's sort of something that means something different to everyone, um, different issues, different types of approaches, different ways of evaluating and measuring companies. Um, and so I think the challenge with, with ESG, while we, we do see it as a growth area, the kind of broader based approaches uh, have a little bit of, of challenge getting traction because there's a lot of different messages out there. So there are some, I think, interesting opportunities and maybe issue specific uh, ESG products. Um, certainly institutions, we, there have been some recent, some of the recent uh, launches in the ETF industry that have the most assets, I think, in the past 15 years have been sort of institutionally seeded um, ESG products. So that's an, it's an interesting area, but there have been some challenges matching the, you know, the supply with the demand uh, for, the, for the products. Yeah, the, the client base that's been using ESG already has access to a plethora of, of strategies at a cost that um, an ETF probably couldn't compete with. Um, I will say that we are starting to incorporate ESG metrics into our fundamental credit research um, just as a matter of business. Now, obviously, you know, you still have to weigh the investment value and the relative value of, of the bonds you select, uh, but we are starting just across the board, not just, you know, for an ESG-type fund of, of incorporating those kind of metrics because we feel like that will have an impact on the business, you know, profitability over the long term, maybe not the short term. Um, so we're sort of incorporated, but from an, at least from an ETF product perspective, we're just not quite there yet. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with some of the things that have said. I think in the U.S., fixed income is, remains an area of opportunity um, that we continue to look at. And, uh, you know, being a global asset manager like Aberdeen Standard is, one of the benefits that we do is we, we, we get to see what's going on in the institutional space, not just here in the U.S., but globally. Um, I would agree with you, Tom, is I, I've, I've been in the ETF space enough where ESG has had its stops and starts, and you know everyone says next year it's going to happen, and it doesn't happen. Um, having a look through into the into the European business um, from an institutional side, it's real. It, it, I mean, there are there are real assets that are there. I would agree with the folks up here. Maybe the message hasn't been right. Maybe the communication hasn't been right. Maybe the education isn't right. You know those types of aspects. But you know one of the things that Aberdeen uh, Standard does really well is in that ESG space. It's, it literally lines every single strategy that we have, no matter what the strategy is. So there's an ESG element um, that goes into those products. So uh, fr from my perspective, it's, it's very real. Um, it's just a matter of does it translate and how long does it take to translate. Um, I, th I think the, the biggest challenge that we've had, um, and, and we always spend time you know, thinking about it from a solution standpoint, is where does it fit, right? What does it take the place of? You know, those types of aspects, those, are re they, those start to get really those are hard questions that you sort of have to figure out. Um, I always look at it from a, you know, if you're looking at an asset allocation is, I'm not looking to add an 11th or a 12th item, I'm looking to replace something that's already in there. And so I don't know that the ESG case is, I don't know that the case has been made really strong of what it replaces um, as part of that solution. But I, I can assure you from, a, from an institutional perspective and from an asset standpoint, it absolutely is real. Do you get to a point where you don't really distinguish an ESG product from a regular product? Like you just incorporate ESG metrics into everything. Well, I think that's ultimately what it'll end up being, okay. right? Is, I mean, I think if you buy the case that a company that is well governed that way typically is a company that does well yeah. kind of aspect, right? So it does make sense to incorporate it um, almost as if another factor in which you're looking at products. So um, that's the argument that we, that we would typically make um, you know, from that standpoint. So I think ultimately what ends up happening is it just gets incorporated rather than perhaps being its own standalone. Okay. 
I would agree, except for maybe cases where someone's looking for a specific impact. True. And yeah. In yeah, those impact, cases, you, that could remain. Yeah, yeah, we sort of separate impact a little bit from that as well. So. And imp impact's actually where we see the most demand. Clients are actively looking um, for investment opportunities, particularly in real estate um, op opportunities with our real estate group. That is in heavy demand, particularly at the financial advisor level. People are looking for that. Um, yeah. The ESG level, I think to your point, no one knows when the payoff is. Everyone knows it's the right thing, and uh, companies will be rewarded for doing the right things, but no one knows when the payoff is. So the ideal state is that on the passive side, you just start working those metrics in naturally. Um, it would be nice if some of the index providers, you know, took that step. Every time there's an incident, to, you know, BlackRock has protests outside, right, because they, they should stop owning gun companies. Um, so you think that at some point there's some talks to just incorporate it naturally into the market so clients don't have to think about the trade-off themselves. That's great. Um, okay, uh, let's move on a little bit here. I think uh, we've got about 12 minutes, so um, I want to leave about four or five minutes for question at the end. Uh, we talked a lot about active strategies thus far. Um, most ETFs are passives. Is there still opportunity in passive ETFs? Uh, I mean, I would, there's always going to be opportunity. I think the market evolves and, and there's new opportunities that come about. Things that we're talking about today, you know, perhaps, you know, we weren't talking about, you know, when I originally, as I said, I was originally with iShares and when iShares start, started their Emerging Markets product, um, the, the discussion there was capacity was about a billion dollars, right? And so obviously markets evolves and things change, you know, from that standpoint. I think all of us collectively that sit up here would suggest it's much harder. It's harder today than what it's ever been in finding those opportunities. Those opportunities do exist, um, but it's becoming more and more challenging, you know, to find, you know, to find those types of opportunities. And I think you see you see much more of an angle shifting towards solution-oriented type of, you know, type of things rather than sort of that standalone passive type of aspect. Um, yeah, it's just, it's just harder. It's, it's just harder to find those pockets. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely agree, and I think they do still exist, and part of it is also, um, you know, you can have a great product and, and bring it to market, but you don't, if you don't have the, the kind of investor education and support and, and alignment with you know the rest of the the firm to to sort of promote it and make make people aware of how to use it in a portfolio. Going back to you know maybe the issues with ESG or, or some of these products is what what problem are you solving? What solution does this provide um, that doesn't already exist in the marketplace? So you know th those are getting a little bit more difficult to uh, to determine what those are, but there, there are still certainly opportunities that we see out there. And and for me, uh, we're mostly an actively managed <laughs> yeah. shop. Uh, but the way that we do support clients with their passive needs is through separately managed accounts. So some of you have probably become familiar with direct indexing. So instead of buying an ETF that's passively managed, you have an option of buying a separately managed account that um, replicates the return of a, of a passive universe. And with this, not only do you get the returns of this environment, but you also get better tax efficiency and that there can be more custom tax loss harvesting to your specific needs, and you can utilize some of those tax benefits to offset gains in other products. So I, I see that as a nice passive opportunity. In terms of um, passive in the ETF space, I still like factors. I think factors are a really useful tool for asset allocators, whether it be uh, low vol or value, or everyone knows a litany of other factors, momentum, size. Uh, I particularly like low volatility as we look at regime changes and you know being so late in the current market cycle if we go through a period of 
challenges, I think the low volatility products can really stand, stand strong for an investor. So within passive or even active quant, I think low volatility is interesting. Yeah, I would say scale is as important as it's ever been in the ETF industry. I think everyone up here has felt some form of uh, consolidation from you know larger company. To, to launch a passive ETF these days, you have to lose money for a longer period of time because the price competition is is so much, and you have to be part of an asset manager that's willing to take uh, a longer view um, into the business line. Um, if you don't have that, you're risking buying an index fund from a provider that might not be there. Um, so I think we're particularly, there's opportunity for the passive space. I just don't know that there's that much opportunity for new providers to, to come into the market on the passive side. Okay. Um, I, I guess that sort of leads to a, a, another question. Uh, currently, we have uh, 22, about 2,200 ETFs listed in the United States. Uh, in 2018, we listed 266 ETFs. So far this year, we've listed at 106. Um, over the past two years, there's been about 200 that have closed. Simple question is, are there too many ETFs? Well, I mean, I, I mean I, it's really it's tough. It's not a simple question. Right, no, it's not a simple <laughs> question. But the beauty of it is the market, right? The, the market's a really powerful thing. The market will determine mm -hmm. what it wants and what it doesn't want. That's the beauty of the, and the efficiency of the market. And so, you know, if, if, you launch a, if you launch a product and it's not very well, well thought through and it's not marketed particularly well, and there's not a distribution plan in case for that, there's a good chance that product is not gonna survive. Um, as Matt indicated, it's, it's, it's harder and harder to support smaller products that aren't particularly profitable. Um, but like I said, the market does a really good job of cleaning that aspect out. I think we would all argue um, that there's probably too many products that exist out there that just aren't supportable moving forward. Yeah, I would agree. And I think what's interesting, you know, over the past few years is it's, it's become easier to bring products to market, particularly as a new issuer. Because you, the, the costs of uh, launching an ETF have come down. They are still, you know, uh, it's still an investment. But there are also platforms that allow you to leverage their trust to bring new products to market. But the problem is, as it's become easier to launch new products, it's also become more difficult from a distribution perspective because the you know the due diligence or the, the home offices and, and the platform providers are having to deal with a, an influx of new products and, and have to evaluate and uh, monitor those. So the gates have kind of come up a bit, and so that that distribution angle is even more difficult and even more costly. And I think part of that you know that liquidation cycle is is driven by by some of that new challenge. Yeah. Yeah, I would say, I mean, it's sort of half and half. I mean, a lot of the new providers are big, legitimate asset managers. It's uh, American Century, like Mason, Prudential, JP Morgan. Um, but there's also a lot of providers that sort of look to you guys, like Global X, like you had this great thematic ETF. Um, maybe I could do that. Maybe I could catch, catch a unicorn and, and gather a billion dollars. And unfortunately, not so many of those folks actually achieve that, that dream because Global X does a really good job of doing those sort of thematic... Uh, marketplaces. So I would say half of it, I think there's a really long road ahead for uh, the big asset managers, but there are, you know, I think some passive funds that um, you could just sort of set your timer to when they end up passing yeah, away. Yeah, Tom, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a good question. We're approached, we've fortunately been approached by a number of different firms that have talked to us about potentially acquiring and things along those lines. 
and, and the, the, the classic line that's always used, which is sort of the death nail is, you know, this product is a billion dollar product if it's marketed well. Anyone who's been in the ETF space knows that a billion dollar product takes a lot of work, right? They just don't exist. Or luck. Oh, yeah, or luck. And as Matt indicated, it's a bit of a unicorn out there. Um, you know, why we all hope to have billion dollar products, um, it's, it's, it's tough. And, and for me, Tom, I, I see no issues with more ETF development. Um, I agree with Steve's original comment about let the markets decide what works and what doesn't work. You know, Adam Smith, Invisible Hand, I believe in all of that. So I want innovation to continue, and those that succeed will live, and those that um, you know, don't do well won't. So I think that's fine. Uh, of the 2,200 ETFs that are in market, I think 99% of the assets and probably 92 or so percent of the actual ETFs are all passive. Um, that means that there's not much in the way of active. So I think that there definitely aren't too many active uh, ETFs, and I would expect to see more, whether they be active transparent or in the future perhaps active non-transparent. All right, um, we're running out of time here, so I think we'll end it there. Uh, I'll open it up for questions now, if anybody's got any questions. Um, sorry, I put it right there and there's, you're right. Oh, okay. <laughs> Um, I think it's a great idea to, for the ETF to go to the alternative space. For the past, uh, VC, private equity, private debt has a huge growth and that's why it creates so much unicorns. I was just wondering how alternative the ETF can go. Thank you. Um, as, a, as a firm, PGM, which is again the asset manager of, of Prudential, that is uh, one of our top priorities. Uh, may, probably not in ETF land. I mean, that would be be nice. But one of our top priorities, um, I'll call it retail access, but the retail could mean advised um, or retail direct. One of our top priorities is give them access to more private structures that are typically reserved for our institutional clients. Um, that is a firm priority. It's difficult. Um, you still have to concentrate on uh, certain wirehouses or certain uh, channels and focus your efforts on them. Um, but we're, we're trying to figure that out because that's where a ton of demand is right now because mm -hmm. that is one of the few spaces where you're getting a nice premium over public markets. Yeah, and I think along those lines, I think Matt and I have even tried to tackle this together. Um, even if you project out even a little further, as you start to get into some of the real asset spaces, some of those are really hard, really hard to solve, at least in, in current situation. The, the amount of development that's taken place in the ETF space has been fantastic over the last five years. You just need some more developments to take place to get into some of those spaces. I think we all have interest there. It's just really hard to do. Mm -hmm. I think we talked about yeah. one of these yeah. things the other day, yeah. yeah. Sorry. <clears throat> yeah, with these non-disclosed uh, ETFs, do you, are you still going to have authorized participants, or is everything going to be done in-house? I'm wondering how much of a secret the portfolio could be if it's going out to all these authorized participants. And also, is NAV available routinely the same way as with the, uh, the type of ETFs we're familiar with? Yeah, the same ecosystem will still exist. Um, what I would caution is, you know, market makers and trading firms are always willing to price anything. The question is, will the price be fair relative to what the portfolio um, is worth? And that, that's where we sort of have to, the market has to, Go ahead. But don't they need to know? They know. So there's there's different structures and, and different opportunities out there, but the uh, the holdings will be disclosed in sort of what they call a blind trust. Um, and they'll have access, an independent party will have access to, to the holdings, so they're able to price it. 
Um, but the provider is also required to price the portfolio and publish that out to the market. Um, so you would have an idea of what the portfolio is actually worth. They will have an indication of what the actual holdings are so they can fairly price it. But again, it's, uh, it will not be the same structure you're typically used to buying the S&P 500. There will be a cost, we think. And with the Presidian model, it is a price that's every second made available, as opposed to currently it's every 15 seconds you get um, a rough price. Uh, but with the other model, the Texas NYSE model, what the APs would have is a proxy portfolio on which to make their judgments on where you know, they want to price things in terms of the spread. Anybody else? I can't really see out there. I think time's All up right. anyway. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you, everybody.